0: How many of you all have ever been treated unfairly in a good way? Buddy? How many of you have ever been treated in a way you did not deserve? Or how many of you have been given something that you did not earn? Other than salvation, believers. I know some of you super spiritual people are thinking salvation, and that's great. But other than that, anybody ever been treated better than you deserve? Well, I have. Amen. Thanks, JJ. That's right. I'll never forget when I was in 10th grade showing up for a geometry class on the day of an exam and not knowing it. Now, here's the thing. It seemed like everybody else in the class knew that we were having an exam except for me, which was not a surprise because uh, at this time in junior high and high school, I didn't pay attention in class and apply myself like I should have. I learned in college and later on in seminary that I could do well by just applying myself and working hard. Imagine that. But I had not yet learned that lesson by the 10th grade, and I was not prepared for this exam, and as you can imagine, I did not do well. I don't remember what my exact grade was, and I'm, honest, I'm being honest with you. I don't remember, okay? But I know it was not good. And my teacher knew that I was not prepared even before she graded my exam because she could see it all over my face when I walked in and heard that we were having a test. Well, after grading the exam, my teacher did something she did not have to do and many would not have done. She let me retake the test the following day and offered to average the grades from those two exams. And that's how she scored my test. And I was, I was just thrilled. I was thrilled. I went home. I studied as hard as I could and aced the exam that next day. I was so undeserving. But I was so thankful that she did not give me what I deserved. Don't you love it when that happens? Don't you love it when you deserve justice but you get mercy? When you mess up royally and you get a second chance, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 3. We are continuing our study through the great book of Jonah this morning, and what we've been learning is that this book, the book of Jonah, is so much more than a story about a man and a fish. That's what we've grown up thinking, right? We've grown up thinking the fish is the main character of the story, right? And Jonah's sort of like the co-star. But what we learn from this small book is that the book of Jonah is so much more than a story about a fish. It's a book that is filled with great truths about our God. In chapter 1, we learn that the book of Jonah is about a sovereign God. Remember, the story begins with God coming to Jonah. And calling for him to go to Nineveh to preach against it. And remember, Jonah doesn't just say no, he gets up and he heads in the opposite direction toward Tarshish, which was about as far in the opposite direction as one could go from Nineveh. And he gets out on a boat and he's out in the water headed toward Tarshish, and God appoints a storm that stops the boat from moving in any direction and the men begin to fear for their lives on the boat they want to know what's wrong and they they find out that Jonah's to blame and what ends up happening is Jonah gets thrown overboard into the sea to appease God and to calm the storm and that's what happens when Jonah hits the water the skies clear and the storm ceases Jonah's out in the water by himself he's going to drown but God Decides to appoint a fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah is then in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights And that's chapter 1 and remember we discussed several key truths that we learned from this first chapter in Jonah We talked about the fact that God is a sovereign God and that he's sovereign everywhere over all things and over everyone last week we were in chapter 2 And we looked at the great prayer that Jonah prays from the belly of the fish and we learned in chapter 2 that that the book of Jonah is also about a saving God Jonah was tossed into the middle of the sea and would have drowned had God not appointed a fish to swallow him up and we learned a key truth there we often think that that the the fish is the instrument of God's punishment but it's not the sea is the sea is God's punishment and the fish is God's salvation that he provides for Jonah and that's key and Jonah says that in chapter 2 and and remember also that God not only point, appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah but he also caused that fish to vomit Jonah on dry ground and that's where we pick up today in chapter 3 right after that lovely event took place And the great truth that we learn from this chapter in this book is that not only is Jonah about a sovereign God and a saving God, but the book of Jonah is also about a forbearing God, a merciful God, a gracious God, a God of second chances. And when we talk about this truth, that God is a gracious God, that he is a God of second chances, the question that must be asked is this. It's the who question. Who receives a second chance from God who does God show compassion for who is God merciful to does he give second chances to those who just to those who prove themselves by their own efforts does he give second chances to those who work hard for it and earn it does he give second chances to those who you know mess up and not too bad those who are not too terrible Or does God give second chances to everyone? No matter who they are, no matter what they do, does he just hand out a a universal pardon for everybody? Well, in Jonah 3, we find answers to these questions. So let's get into it. The first principle we learn from Jonah 3, when talking about who God is gracious to, we we, we learn that God is gracious to the unqualified. God is gracious to the unqualified. I went to college at the University of Arkansas, which is in Fayetteville, and it's a, it's a southeastern conference school. And I know that doesn't mean a lot to uh, a lot of y'all in here, but that's uh, uh, a competitive conference, especially in football. And there have been a lot of coaching changes this year in the SEC. And, and none of the changes that were made were all that surprising. Uh, um, You know, the coaches didn't have great seasons. Though the coach of the Auburn Tigers, who lost his job this year, though he had two rough seasons two years ago, he led the Auburn Tigers to an undefeated season and a national championship. And now he's unemployed. I mean, Auburn is the perfect example of how unforgiving and unmerciful a top program can be. You either compete year in and year out or you find another job and we don't think twice about that do we We really don't I mean let's be honest that's the way the world works we get it right we want the best coach for our team we want the best employee for the job that we want the one who's most qualified most successful the one who is going to do the best job for us and oftentimes We think that God works in this way. We do. Many of us think that God reasons in this way. That he looks at us and and he says, you know, I'm going to invest the person who's going to give me the greatest return. Who's going to do the best job for me. But guess what? Guess what we find in the book of Jonah and elsewhere. God's not like us, is he? He's not. His ways are not like our ways. Look at Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, this passage sounds familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound familiar? The reason why is because this passage, this verse, is almost identical to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to Jonah 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. You see, almost identical. But there is a phrase that differentiates the second from the first. In chapter 3 is added the phrase, the second time. We learn here that God's word had to come to Jonah twice. Because the first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what did he do? He bolted, right? He did, he got out of there he ran away he tried to flee from the presence of the Lord and you would think that after Jonah had done this you would think God might have said fine you know take off run away you don't want to be a part of what I'm doing that's fine I'm not gonna make you I'm just gonna find someone else to do it I'm gonna find someone more willing someone more qualified than you Jonah You would have thought that God might have said, man, you know, people think Jonah is this super spiritual prophet. Look at him running from me. I'm going to pick out someone else, someone more willing, someone more spiritual. Yet he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't. No, God goes to great lengths to redirect Jonah. First, he appoints a storm. Then he appoints a fish, and then he has the fish vomit Jonah back up on the dry ground. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, God comes to Jonah again a second time, and he calls him out once again. He says, hey, Jonah, remember me? Tried to run from me, and I had you swallowed up by a big fish and spit out right here where you stand. Remember me, Jonah? I still have a mission for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. And look at what happened after God's word came to Jonah a second time. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He better, right? According to the word of the Lord. Now, back in chapter 1, we talked about, once again, Jonah arose, right? But he went toward Tarshish in the opposite direction. But here, notice Jonah arose and he went in the right direction toward Nineveh. And notice what happens when he gets there. Verse four, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So, so Jonah finally goes to the city of Nineveh and he preaches the word that God gave him. And what's the word that God gives him? Into verse four, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown so he does what God says. He preaches against Nineveh. And notice the response in verse 5. And the people believed God. They believed God. So Jonah had a rocky road to get to Nineveh, didn't he? But God eventually used him in Nineveh to bring the Ninevites to repentance. Now listen here. I want you to get this. This is key. We learned something very important about our God here. God could have picked a super spiritual, overqualified servant, one who would have gone to Nineveh at the drop of a hat without any question, one who had a history of going into hostile areas and preaching repentance with boldness, but instead God chose to use a weak-minded, intolerant, fleeing prophet like Jonah for his purposes. A prophet who had such a small view of God that he thought he could outrun God by ship. A prophet who was openly and outwardly disobeying the direct call of God. God to, he, he chose to use this fleeing prophet in the, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea instead of choosing a more willing and more spiritual servant. Why? Because God is a forbearing God. He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. Who delights in giving second chances to the unqualified. Our God, the one true God of the scriptures, is a God who delights in taking the unimpressive and the mediocre, the incompetent and the unqualified in using them for his kingdom purposes. How many of you have ever heard it said before that God does not call the qualified but he qualifies the call how many the call? how many of you have heard something like that something along those lines yeah that's that's exactly right that's true and we see that here with Jonah when God first called Jonah Jonah was not ready nor was he willing but God changed all that maybe you're here this morning and you feel like that here this morning maybe you feel that you're not very qualified to serve the Lord. Maybe you've said to yourself one time or another, God could never use me, I have nothing to offer, I'm average at best, I'm insignificant and ordinary. Here's the good news for you, if this is you, if you feel unqualified and insignificant, you're the very type of person that God delights in using. And guess what, the opposite's also true. your mentality is, here I am, God, to your rescue, you know, no need to worry anymore. I'm here to improve upon your kingdom work with my greatness and giftedness. If you come with your religious resume in hand, think that God would be impressed and would be fortunate to have you on the team. No, you're the least likely of persons to be used by God. Now, God can use anybody, but He delights in using the humble. God has very little interest in using the the proud and the pompous, the overconfident and the arrogant for, for his kingdom purposes. He delights in taking the unlikely and even the unwilling and transforming them and equipping them and using them to accomplish his kingdom work. Believers, that was true of Jonah in his life, and that can be true in your life as well you're here this morning and you're not busy serving God because you think you have nothing to offer you're the very type of person that God delights in using therefore you need to be open and ready and willing to serve him knowing that God does not call the equipped, but he equips those he calls maybe you're here and you've said no to God like Jonah so many times that you've lost count Been deliberately disobedient to his call in your life for some time and and you think you're you're just too far gone you've said you've said no too many times you've disqualified yourself from service listen I pray you learn this important lesson here in Jonah 3 that God gives second chances to the unqualified not only that he also gives second chances to the ungodly God is gracious to the ungodly we learn In chapter 3 that not only does God give Jonah a second chance, but he gives Nineveh a second chance look at chapter 3 verse 4 Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown verse 5 and the people of Nineveh believed God so God calls Jonah to go to the Ninevites to preach against them. And God does this incredible work and brings them to repentance, proving that he is a God of great mercy who is willing and who willingly part the worst of sinners. He does. Believe me when I say that the Ninevites were the worst of sinners. They were. They were wicked. Though I'll go into more detail on this next week, we're told in Nahum That Nineveh was a bloody city. A city with masses of dead corpses and countless dead bodies. I'm doing some background on the Ninevites. I read where they would return from war with the the heads of their enemies. And they would stack them outside the city gates. This is a barbaric and godless city, which shouldn't surprise us, right? It's the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were known for their wickedness and known for being barbaric. Listen to this quote. You can see it up on the screen here from Elliot E. Johnson from DTS. He says this, Johnson says this, Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and idolatrous empires in the world. They were extremely wicked people and they were great enemies of of Israel and they had slaughtered many Jews. You know, many when they read the book of Jonah, they kind of give Jonah a tough rap. They say, you know, man, Jonah's got to get over his hang-ups, man. He's got to be more willing. He's just a bigot. Not wanting to go to those poor Ninevites. He needs to be more willing to go and, and, and do the work of God. Well, let me tell you, though, he was in the wrong. For being disobedient and running from God he had good reason for disliking the Ninevites they had slaughtered many of his people that would have been the equivalent of God calling for the Jews in World War II to go do ministry to the Nazis in Germany I mean Jonah would have rather gone anywhere than Nineveh and it's tough to blame him but we're reminded once again in this book like we are elsewhere in the scriptures that God is gracious To the ungodly. He is in the business of taking those who deny him, those who are cynical and skeptical of him, and even those who are adamantly opposed to him, and and, and taking them and transforming them and using them for his purposes. God takes those whom we view as being the scum of the earth, and he redeems them for himself. And this truth was just too much for Jonah. And if we're honest truth's a little much for us too it It is but it's true this is what God delights in doing he delights in taking a broken down and fallen and disgusting life and redeeming it and restoring it and using it for that person's joy and for his glory let's be honest how important is this truth for us today to realize maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking yourself Graham you just don't know me You don't know how sinful I am. You don't know all the awful things I've done. You're right, I don't. But you know what? I know the God I serve. And I know that He gives second chances to the ungodly. I know that He delights in taking the barbaric and the perverse and the immoral and the criminal and restoring them and redeeming them for His purposes. Not only is it important that we... Remember that God gives second chances to the unqualified and to the ungodly. But lastly, it's also imperative that we remember God only gives second chances to the repentant. God is gracious, but to the repentant. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and none of us shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So so Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches this message. He says, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And remember, this was a violent city with barbaric murderers. One would think that Jonah might not make it out alive preaching this kind of message. Yet notice what happens. The Ninevites repented, and they believed God. Folks, this is an incredible work of God here. Not many of the prophets were successful when dealing with God's people, yet you have revival here breaking out among the godless Ninevites. This was incredible. And notice at the end of verse 5, they're truly repentant. We're told that they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. Now, what does that mean? Well, What's the significance of sackcloth? Well, at this time, people would do this to show their humility. By doing this, they were were identifying with with poor people. They were showing their humility, and they were showing their need. And the whole city was doing this. And at the end of verse 5, we're told, From the greatest of them to the least of them, even the king, folks. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, and, and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. This is a king, folks. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Isn't that amazing? The king of the capital of Assyria. The king of one of the most godless, most barbaric, most immoral and idolatrous cities in all the world got off his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes and he called for a citywide fast and the repentance of all Ninevites. What an amazing work of God. You think family members of yours are beyond hope? Don't give up continue to pray and share. Look at the work that God is able to do here. And notice their hope in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So they're they're repenting and they're turning from their evil ways and, and they're hoping that God is going to turn his wrath away from them. That's their hope. And notice how God responds in verse 10. When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Notice that word there. God relented. God relented. When he saw the Ninevites from the top down had humbled themselves. And had turned from their wicked ways. He turned his wrath away. God gave the Ninevites a second chance. Because they were repentant. Now... This passage here, this scripture here raises a big theological question for, for some. Many have read this passage where it says God relented and in other translations where it says God repented and, and they ask what, you know, does this mean God changes? I thought God didn't change. Does this mean God changed? You know, they have trouble. Making sense of that. Here's the dilemma. Malachi 3.6 says God does not change clearly states, I the Lord do not change. That's pretty clear, right? But here's the problem. You have other verses that say God relented or God repented. So which one is it? Does God change or or doesn't he? Which verse is right? Well, both are right. All scripture is inspired by God. Both are right. We have to affirm both and we have to interpret scripture with scripture. And here's what scripture teaches. They teach that God does not change in terms of who he is. He doesn't. In terms of his essence, in terms of his attributes, God does not become more holy, more righteous, or more loving over time. And that's a good thing, right? Because if he could change in one direction, he might be able to change in the other and become less holy, less loving, less merciful. So it's good that God is perfectly holy, right? That he doesn't change in terms of who he is. But get this, Scripture is also clear that God does change in terms of the way he relates to his creation. And we know that to be true, don't we? At times God blesses, other times he curses. Sometimes he rewards, other times he punishes, and we see that in the story. Before Jonah went to Nineveh, God's wrath was set against the Ninevites. But after they repented, his wrath was turned away. And believers, this is good news for us as well, isn't it? Because at one time, we were all enemies of God. We were. But when we repented, and when we trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, we moved from being God's enemies to His children. Now, instead of having to endure His wrath in the life to come, we are promised blessings. So God changes in his response, depending upon our response. Repentance changes things, and we see that all throughout the Scripture. Jesus says in in Luke 13, 3, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent. How many of you parents have been on a long trip with your kids? The kids start fighting in the back seat. You turn around and you say, I'm going to pull this car over. How many of y'all have said that? Be honest, or had it said to you? Or had it done to you, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Tim, doesn't surprise me, man. Now, when you say that, does that literally mean that you're pulling the car over at that very moment? No, that's a a conditional statement, isn't it? What's implied here is if you don't stop fighting, I'm going to pull this car over. That's a conditional statement. And and when God says through Jonah, in 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown, it is implied here unless they repent. Otherwise, there's no point sending a prophet, is there? I mean if God's judgment is going to come regardless, there's no point in Jonah going and telling them about the coming judgment It's just gonna come but God is giving them a second chance if they repent and that's exactly what happens They repent and God relents now of course when I say that God Changes in the way he relates to us. He changes in a way that's different from us doesn't he you see? We're not all knowing We don't know what's going to happen for sure parents we don't know for sure if we're going to pull that car over or keep on driving now we have some good ideas of what might happen right but we don't know for sure god is all knowing he knows how we are going to respond before we respond so he in turn knows how he's going to respond now i know we could we could just you know give ourselves headaches thinking about this But it's important that we acknowledge this truth that God of course is, is all-knowing that he's sovereign that he is in control God knows when he first calls Jonah to go to Nineveh He knows Jonah's gonna eventually go to Nineveh and he knows that the Ninevites are gonna repent and he knows that he's going to Relent that's just biblical God is sovereign. He is all-knowing But with that being said, you know what else scripture affirms God is sovereign man is responsible It's true it's a mystery how that, how that all works out, but it's true. Repentance is key. It is. It's a part of God's relenting here. Though God is sovereign and knows how it's all going to go, Scripture is clear that we're responsible, and it's clear unless we repent, we will perish. Look at verse 10 again. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When he saw what they did. You see? Repentance is key. And again, this is a theme that runs all throughout the Scriptures, that God gives second chances, but only to those who are repentant. Folks, that's true of God and his dealings with the Ninevites. And that's true of him today and his dealings with us. Scripture is clear that though at one time man was in right relationship with God, that changed pretty quickly, didn't it? Shortly after man was created in God's image and placed in a garden paradise, he turned away from God and so have all of us. God could have left us in that state. He could have wiped his hands of us. He could have said, I've had it with man. And could have left us broken and fallen. But instead, you know what? This is so awesome. God gives us a second chance at righteousness. He gives us a second chance at a right relationship with himself. But but like we've learned from the Ninevites, for us to be made right with God, for us to have a right relationship with him, we must respond to him. And there are two parts to that response. The first we've already talked about this morning, it's repentance. For you to be made right with God, you must first see yourself for who you truly are. You must see yourself as a sinner condemned and unclean. You must see yourself as one who is apart from and opposed to God as a sinner in need of a Savior. That's imperative. For one to be saved, they must see themselves in this way. Jesus said, I did not come for righteous people. I came for sinners. What he's saying here is, I came for people who know they're in need. I came for people who know they're undeserving, who know they don't deserve me. I came for people who are aware of their sinfulness and their need. I came for people who are willing to forsake that sin and turn to me. That's what he's saying. So that's the first part of the response. There must be repentance we have to see our 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 sinfulness and our need and be willing to turn from that and the second part of the response is that we need to understand that God has provided a solution to our sin problem in Christ you know how Jesus provided that solution for us you know right he provided it through his death think about this for a moment Jesus endured what the Ninevites deserved. You ever thought about that? Remember, they were on the verge of experiencing God's wrath, and they deserved it because of their sin. But guess what? They repented and were told that God relented. Jesus was not spared in this way. Though he was nothing like the Ninevites, he was perfect in every way. He was not spared in any way. He was betrayed Denied, tried, beaten, and was crucified with criminals on a shameful cross. And not only that, not only did he die physically, but he also experienced the full wrath of God for us. Listen, though we deserve God's wrath, Jesus endured God's wrath so that we might be saved from God's wrath. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to respond to it in this way, If you have yet to come to grips with your sinfulness and your need of a Savior, I pray you would this morning. I pray that it would become clear to you this morning that you are in need. And I pray that you would turn from that sin and look toward, trust in, and cling to your solution, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.